My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better by writing a review on iTunes or by simply making a donation. As always, I will be the man with the questions, and today, my very interesting guest with the answers will be Spencer Wolf. Spencer is the award-winning author of Aftermind, which I have to admit is a mind-bender, I have to say it again, mind-bender of a science fiction novel that I just finished reading, uh, and it has uh, a variety of very interesting ideas that uh, we're going to be discussing today. So, hi Spencer, and uh, thanks for coming on my show. Hello, Nicola. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Fantastic. So, uh, Spencer, before we jump into your book, uh, let me ask you perhaps to introduce yourself in your own words. Uh, uh, what do you do? And uh, tell us a little about yourself. What's the best way to introduce you? Right. Well, I'm quite a, a, an eclectic person here. I have a, a vast uh, types of experiences in my background. I've gone from mechanical engineering to feature film marketing. And now I'm a program manager at a software development company. And I also tie it all together with business and writing. So it's, a, it's an interesting background. And I, I know that you have a, a diverse uh, set of interests yourself. And so that's why I think it, it's great to be here and talk all about these things. Excellent. And one of your interesting biographical features is your time at Paramount. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, sure. Uh, so. Uh, you know, here, I'll tie two things together for you. I went out to Los Angeles to get into the movie business through special effects. Because I started out uh, very young, always building models. And uh, to me, that was the, the best thing, robots and movies. Uh, so I went out to Los Angeles and I eventually ended up at Paramount working in feature film marketing, working on the posters and billboards and all the creative advertising that goes into the feature films. And uh, it, it satisfied that uh, very... A deep interest to be part of other worlds, if you will. And so I, I enjoyed that very much. Very interesting. And perhaps you can share a couple of your most favorite and or perhaps best known uh, films that you've worked on. Oh, okay. Uh, well, we did about 15 movies per year while I was there. And so I, I don't want to brag to say that I was in charge of anything like that. It's not, uh, it's a whole big team of experts that put all the effort into it. It's a tremendous project to have a, a movie open at $100 million, and it's, it's definitely uh, worth uh, everybody's credit for that. Uh, some of the big ones, of course, that somebody would recognize, the largest, of course, would be Titanic. And I remember we had a great uh, experience on that, uh, everybody in the boardroom celebrating with cake and champagne. And each week, at the, the, uh, the box office revenues were going up um, as the ship was going down. <laughs> and, and so... Uh, it was it was really a, a fascinating thing, but the, the my favorite is uh, probably Braveheart. Um, I didn't work on it specifically uh, to the extent that I could have, but uh, I do have the, a full size poster of it uh, in my in my room um, behind me, and so it's uh, I really enjoyed working on uh, on the after effects of that. And what was your position again at Paramount? I was uh, a, a couple of different things. I was uh, executive secretary. Uh, to one of the senior executives in the creative advertising branch. Uh, I did that for a while, and then I came back to be an interim uh, executive director, was my title, if you will, from a very good friend of mine, um, 
who I'm going to tell, absolutely must watch this interview now because I'm mentioning her. But uh, yeah, so, so that's what I did. And it was a very uh, fascinating time. And I worked on all the projects and organizing, uh, you know, any number of different things there. Fascinating. All right. So now that we've established some credit in that world, let's move into the book world and the sort of the science fiction world. Uh, so perhaps we should start by the sort of the macro view, the, the sort of sp spaced down view. So what is science fiction in general, in your opinion? It's the ability to think big thoughts. And it's here, I'll, I'll jump right into a, a phrase that'll maybe tie it all together uh, it, it, very quickly. The difference, and this maybe is a little bit of what I would consider also what transhumanism is. It's that something that makes us better than we are. And science fiction is all internal in the mind, something that makes us better than we are. And you can separate people who enjoy big thoughts versus small thoughts in this way that I just thought of it. Everybody knows Elon Musk, all the different accomplishments that he's achieved. But if you think of it this way, the big thoughts versus small thoughts. If Elon Musk was to land a craft on Mars on a Thursday instead of a Tuesday, you'd still have armchair critics saying, yeah, but he missed his estimate. <laughs> right? So that to me is the difference between big thoughts and small thoughts, big ideas and small ideas. And science fiction to me is the big ideas. Wow, that's, that's actually a very nice way to put it. I, I really like that. It's got some cheerful humor in it. Uh, and it makes a very good and important point, which is the point that I've been uh, kind of pushing through my work too, which is to say, uh, you know, I really don't, the timeline is interesting and important, but it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is if something were to happen uh, and then the question is, so what? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? So, you know, in the grander scheme of things from a philosophical point of view, uh, whether the singularity or artificial intelligence would come to be 5, 10, 20 or 50 years from now may not be so crucial. The, the most important thing is, so what? What happens next? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is it going to be the end or the beginning? And, and, and th that's why I, I like to focus uh, on these things. And now you gave me a very interesting sort of example of, of, uh, of, of kind of epitomizing that kind of thinking. So thank you for that. Yes, thank you. Uh, then the next step forward is perhaps to ask you, how did you get uh, interested in science fiction yourself? Right. Well, all right. So this, this will go back uh, quite a ways. Um, and I'll, I'll tell a number of different stories throughout our time here so you get to know me a little bit better. But Of course, that's what we're here for. Yeah, very good. So when I was younger, probably uh, 12 years old, somewhere around there, uh, I, I wasn't reading enough. And so one of my teachers uh, at school, grade school, she... She brought me to the library and said, pick out any of these books on this uh, paperback rack. And I picked a book uh, which had the, the coolest looking cover. It had a bunch of boys on the cover, 12, 13 years old, fighting in what looked like a war. And I, I picked that one. It looked good from its cover. And it turned out to be a, a true story of these four boys, uh, 12 years old to 18 years old, who won the equivalent of the Medal of Honor for defeating the German army in Naples in World War II. And uh, it's called The Four Days of Naples. So as I grew up, uh, so anyway, I was fascinated by this book. I loved it for the story of the boys. 
And uh, as I grew up, I started to work that into some of the ideas I had of what I could become. And then when I was in college, uh, I was walking through the stacks of the library and trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life when I graduated. And I found a copy of the script for Blade Runner on the shelf. And I pulled it off the shelf and I started reading it. And it was just uh, tremendous to me. It was like, this is, this is amazing. You can express yourself. You can become whatever you want to be uh, in writing and create a whole world. And I read the whole thing as I was standing there. And I decided that's when I wanted to be a writer. So you put the reading and the writing together. And I said, well, what world is this going to come to fruition in? And science fiction for me with the big ideas was the natural place to be. Just, just out of curiosity, you found the script for Blade Runner, not the actual book. So was that written by Philip K. Dick still? Or, or, because that's based on uh, what, if do Android dreams electric dreams or something like that? Do androids dream of electric sheep? Oh, electric sheep, yeah. Electric sheep. And so I was thinking if I should do this or not, if I get in trouble for this, but it's not the copy that I read in this library. I did not take that copy. Here, I have it right here. Hold on one second. So, so this is this is the script. This is a copy of it. Okay, just so everybody knows, I did not take the one from the library. Okay, just to say that again, this is a copy of it. But this was this was written in February of 1981, the Blade Runner script. Who did that? Well, the author is not on here. Normally today it would all be written with the author, so I don't know who wrote this one. But this is a copy of that script. And you know, if you, I don't know if your uh, readers want to know the ending or not, but there's always been a debate: is is Deckard a uh, replicant or not? In the movie version, I would say no. But in the script version, the last paragraph right here answers that question. And if you'd like me, I could just read that one sentence, but otherwise not. Maybe we shouldn't read that one sentence. Maybe we should let let that like a crumb that people can follow through to the, if they care about it, just to keep the mystery. Right. So that would be the major spoiler right there. And I'll, I'll keep it amongst us. Okay. Fantastic. Excellent. And, and there, by the way, because, and the, one of the reasons why I want to keep it a mystery is because I, I heard that they are either in the process of shooting or about to begin shooting, uh, kind of the sequel to Blade Runner. And, and I imagine very much that this will be one of the key things in that part in the sequel. It would have to be. And that's why I don't want to kind of ruin it completely. <laughs> Yes, because I, I did enjoy that movie very much myself, uh, and, and I found it to be very profound indeed. So, okay, so we have the story of you being inspired, which is the story of the four bo boys in World War II, uh, and then your kind of uh, inspiration to uh, by science fiction and movies, interestingly, where you actually ended up working for a time. Then where do writing and technology come in then? Because they're all, they're both very pertinent to our conversation today, right? I mean, technology is a huge part of science fiction. And then the question is, why write? Why not keep making movies? Because you wrote a, a, a book. Right. Okay. Uh, and that's right, R-I-G-H-T. Okay. So the, 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 reason, the reason is because achieving some of the grand schemes of science fiction is impossible unless you are super have uh, super abilities to achieve certain things like this it's a lot easier to imagine and dream big thoughts in your mind and write them down and so if you think of uh, you know i know from prior interviews that you've done you always ask somebody what 
how would they describe themselves in a couple of words? And the way that I would describe myself is a realistic optimist. And the, the reason I say that is because I'm optimistic about the future and what science fiction and technology can do for our future, but I'm realistic about where we are right now, day to day, whether it be social or political uh, technology. And so the realism puts me in the writing stage. The optimism keeps me uh, inspired for the future. And I'll tell you where the, that realistic optimism comes from. If you think about like the longevity, right? Uh, just flashing back to Blade Runner, they wanted more life, right? How can we get more life? This is a, a fundamental thing that could change all of humanity. But there's, uh, if you think of in 2015, $6 billion was spent on professional athlete salaries. But some of the most famous noted researchers in the field of longevity have to take to uh, crowdfunding to, to raise $30 at a, at a shot. And so that's one aspect. A another is just announced th this past week. Google makes billions of dollars. And yet they're just now announcing that they're going to be selling their Boston Dynamics Robotics division because it's not profitable. They bought it something like three years ago, and now they have to sell it. It's not making a profit already. So some of these great ideas and visions that we all have for the future are sometimes held in check by the realities of today. Yeah, tell me about it. As a, as a podcaster on the topic, I, I have to deal with the reality of production costs and survival on a, on a daily basis almost. Yeah. You know, for that, actually, I thought of something uh, for how we deal with something like this. And I think it might come down into the future of universal income. I haven't decided if I'm completely for that or not, but for people like us who like to create and, and do things like this of our passions, a universal income would be very helpful. Uh, some of these ideas that are, it's difficult to monetize when there's, the competition is endless, billions of people connected and such. So maybe that's a way to go. Yeah, I'm myself a, a, a huge proponent of uh, guaranteeing minimum income, even though, or even maximum income, as I've called it sometimes. But it's all the devil is in the details. It's all about how you implement it that would make it right or wrong or or succeed or fail, in my opinion. So uh, anyway, let's let's go let's go back here uh, on topic then. And so, uh, what's the motivation and perhaps the ultimate goal behind your work? Is there, is that, a, is that a question that I'm asking a bit too early in your life? Uh, or, or is that already kind of shaped and formed and, and sort of clear to see? Because sometimes it takes many decades and people are only able to look at, see that in, in retrospective when they're like 60 or 70 with, so maybe perhaps it's a bit early or not. It's, it's a good time. I mean, it's really to satisfy an anxiety or an angst, if you will, of what do I do with these thoughts and these dreams of the future, of where I want to be? And it's difficult to achieve these things. I can't upload my mind to a computer. I can't do these things that I want to do. So the only thing I can do right now is, is write about them and express them in other ways. So what I want to get across in the book is somehow this is a story that I wrote because it's something that I would like to read. And I wrote it in the way that I would like to read it and experience it. These would be the friends I would have if I was in that situation. And maybe this would have been my experience. 
very interesting and just just it, it it just occurred to me by the way something that you mentioned a second ago about uh, life extension and longevity in fact the androids in uh, blade runner wanted to accomplish what we want to accomplish that's to say life extension right for them it was just a few years uh much much shorter than the average human lifespan and if they were to achieve the average life expectancy, they would have been probably satisfied of, of a human, that is. And yet today we are in kind of the same position that they were in the sense that we are not satisfied with our current life, except, uh, life expectancy and we want to push it forward uh, much further and perhaps indefinitely. Yeah, very much. Their lifespan was four years in the movie, which is... A very short time, 200 years ago, it was what, 20 or 30 years. Now it's 80 and we're not satisfied. So I don't know if we'll ever be satisfied like that. And it's just, uh, but I don't want to find out the hard way that uh, I missed the extension by a day or two. Right, but but what, what, what interests me the most is the fact that you brought a very interesting point in the sense that, and I would bring that later on in your, in the context of your book, in the sense that their dreams their imagination, they, what they yearned for, what they hoped for is the same that we do. So in a way, they had a very human kind of a dream. And, and, and it was kind of, in a way, very unjust and, and unfair for them to be living only four years. Yes, that's right. That's right. So th that raises a, a very good point about anthropomorphizing androids or robots or AI. And I get asked that uh, as well about my book. Is it fair to actually anthropomorphize the AI? And uh, I, you know, I've thought about this quite a bit, and I think it, it really comes down into two different categories. There's, there's a way of how do we see the AI or the robot, and then how does that AI or robot actually think for itself? Right. And if you look at how we look at it, then yes, absolutely, we try to humanize that. If you look at just Siri on your phone, you give it a name, it has a female voice, you think it's a personality in there. It's just web queries, but it, we give it a personality. Uh, and so, yes, absolutely we do that. And with robotics, there's we, we have the uncanny valley where things are cute and cuddly until you get to a certain point, they become grotesque. They're too close to human. Does it look dead? Is it sick? Then you pass that and you get to the human, very human looking, and we were fascinated by it again. So absolutely, we like to put a human perspective on it. Now, looking at it from the, the replicant's perspective or whatever that you want to think of it from the AI or the robot, do they actually think like humans? And that right there, I think we really have to say that that depends. And there's two different branches of that to think about. And if I could call that like an evolver or a seeder, where one is where we evolve their minds through algorithms and programming. And that one I'll say, most likely, no, it will not think like a human. The other is a cedar where we seed it with the memories and the thoughts of a human. And in that case, I would say, yes, we absolutely do want it to be human. If that was my mind, my memories put in there, and that was supposed to be an extension of me, I would absolutely want it to be the same, a human or a loved one to be a human. And in your book, you kind of take the second path. And that's exactly right. That second path of the memories into the computer, trying to figure out who you are once you're in there, is it the same you? Can a human ever be the same human twice? Uh, that's the crux of my, my book. So, so I was just about to ask you, what is Aftermind all about? So you kind of already 
answered it, but perhaps you can elaborate a touch more. Sure. So there's an old uh, saying that if you can, you step in the same river twice, right? The water is always flowing. Anterey. Exactly, right. So I'm taking this a step further. If, we're, if our minds are put into a computer, is that really us? And what version of us is that? And there, you know, if you look at a, a Word doc versus a Pages doc on a Mac, it's just slightly different, but is it the same document? If you upload your mind to a computer and it's just slightly different, is it still you? Will you have the same visions, the same imagination and memories? It's, it's hard to know but we would have to work to get it there. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the questions that you raise with your book. Uh, and your book is located, interestingly, in places like uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and in Tasmania. <laughs> yes. Why those two places? Okay, so, so uh, Minnesota, because that's my home state, and because it's the land of 10,000 lakes, and the story revolves around a boy who is uh, terribly allergic to water. And that's a very good contrasting background. So that when he's uploaded into the computer, as water and technology don't mix, he has to somehow combine those two in such a way that he can become human, a human computer, and mix the technology with nature and have it all come together as one. So that's the one aspect. And the Tasmania is because I used to live in Australia. I went to uh, the University of Sydney for a year. And uh, Tasmania was, was this uh, magical place that, that uh, I always thought was, was a wonderful spot. And it's, um, it's pretty much the farthest you can get from Minnesota as a central of, of, uh, of the U.S. down to Australia like that. And, and it's an island state. So uh, that fit just as well. Now he's surrounded by the water and he has to deal with that situation. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a place on my wish list to visit, by the way. I know I have a few uh, podcast fans there. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping to go there one day soon. I even heard Steve Wozniak bought a house there not long ago or something. Uh, did he really? Yeah, that's what I was told by one of the, the people from there. Anyway, uh, so... What's the year? What's the timeline? What's the time frame or, or the year that your plot is located in or situated in? Right. I put it roughly about uh, 2030, 2035, right around in there. And there really is, there's two timelines of the story. There's one timeline where the main character, the boy, wakes up in the computer. And that is that future time. His memories that he has to try to sort through are more in our current time more around us maybe five years, 10 years from now as he's growing up. And that goes sequentially until the, the incident that uh, happens to him that then causes him to be uh, uploaded into the computer. Very interesting. And, and so let me ask you, do you have a thesis and is that thesis kind of best captured by the opening quote uh, uh, at your book, which is by uh, Margaret Madden, which goes like this, quote, mistakes, faults, pains, memories, and dreams, but most of all, lots of imagination is what makes us all human, end of quote. So is that your thesis, that it's imagination that makes us most of all human? Most of all, yes, plus the ability to make mistakes and correct them. 
and to live with those mistakes. Uh, the, one of the things I talk about in the book is that computers never make mistakes. They're programmed, right? But in order to really become that computer, the coding has to be programmed to make mistakes so that it can become human. So that the, the characters can uh, exist in that world. Uh, computer worlds are finite, uh, you know, definitive uh, zeros and ones, but they have to be more fuzzy. They have to allow that human nature to make mistakes. And the computers have to be able to dream and have an imagination like that, like humans do. Otherwise, they won't be that uh, human version of us. Very interesting. And in support of your words, uh, I want to quote on page 50 where you say, quote, if you ever want to make a computer more human, make sure it's coded to be full of screaming mistakes, end of quote. Yes, that's right. That's right. And one of the, uh, and, and the main character, um, his name, when he's in the computer, his name is Packet. Uh, his rationalization as he's as trying to figure out who he really is, the, the way that he determines that uh, he can't possibly be a computer is because he's made so many mistakes. And therefore, he determines emphatically, I'm a human, therefore. Mm -hmm. And until he corrects that and realizes, no, that's, that's the way it was now programmed to be able to make mistakes, he can then come to that acceptance that he's now a computer. And that's why that, at the end, is, is an effective human computer. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So let's talk about Packet a little bit. Uh, first of all, th that very interesting tool that you use, his allergy to water, which is kind of very... Uh, it's it's a it's a very perhaps appropriate metaphor for kind of in capturing that dichotomy between nature and technology. Uh, it by the way reminded me a little bit to some of the points that Steve Mann made uh, uh, during my interview with him, uh, which we did, uh, and and he makes those crazy uh, water instruments that you play by using water and. And when I was doing the interview, we had to cut a couple of times at least because he was pouring a lot of water on my technology and I just had a brand new camera. So I was highly concerned <laughs> something's going to go wrong. And his thing was like, you know, that's the problem with technology. We have to be able to submerge it. We have to be able to take it with us anywhere we go. Uh, and, and especially with water, it's very important because water is us and technology is us too but yet they don't seem to mix well together. So tell me a little bit about that and perhaps also about whether allergy to water is a real condition or not. Oh, it absolutely is a, is a real condition. It, it's extremely rare. And uh, I've put it, uh, uh, I've taken some artistic license to make it even more uh, critical uh, a path for this individual. More severe. M more severe because it's his interpretation of it. If you're a young boy, you, you can exaggerate the, the fear of these things. And there's some other elements in the story that combine to enhance that fear. Uh, and so really what, what I'm saying is that technology is like water. It's everywhere. And you really have to get used to it now, whether you like it or not. You can't avoid it. And if he's the only person on the planet that is so allergic to that water or technology, how is he ever going to come to be whole? And only by accepting those two together can he exist in the form of technology. Very interesting. Now, when we started uh, our conversation today, I called your book 
a mind bender. And to be honest, I took that word uh, out of uh, one of the reviews of your books on Amazon, someone else's word. But but I thought it was kind of appropriate because, uh, as I shared with you in my uh, uh, preliminary conversation, I did struggle with kind of making sense of it all for maybe 75% of the content, if not longer. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. so thank you for, for, being, uh, for saying that and being honest about it and then also giving me the opportunity to talk about the book. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's a risk in, whenever an author takes a new approach to a writing style. And in this case, none of us have the perspective of what it's like to wake up in a computer. So if, you're, are, if you can suspend that disbelief and say, here I am now in a computer and I'm flooded with all these past memories, some are disjointed, some are mistakes, some were dreams or imaginations, caricatures that a young boy might have, all of these have to somehow come together like a puzzle. And so the book is sort of mimicking that experience of the individual. Uh, you know, in an old detective story, you would find out the clues, you'd find out the case along with that detective. So in this sense, I put the reader in the perspective of packet who wakes up in the computer figuring out who you are along the way. And hopefully by the end, it did make sense as to who he was. Yes, it did. And there were some sprinkles, but but I... Along the way too, but but I have to say it took me for quite a spin for for a while. So, okay. well, very good, thank you. Yeah, th thank you for that too. Uh, now, tell us about what you call quote the enhanced inversion test uh, uh, of AI, or and or how is it different from the classical Turing test? Right, very good. So. The Turing test, as we know, is uh, I would type on a computer and there would be the computer would type back to me and I would have to be not able to determine if that was a real person on the other side typing or a computer. So we've, we've progressed so far beyond that now, and not in terms of a computer passing it, but in terms of the theory and the concepts of what it can be. So I created this, uh, this new type of test called the enhanced inversion test where the computer now has the consciousness enough to give itself a test to determine if it's a human or a computer. So it turns a test in on itself and has to uh, come through in the end with the correct answer. Basically, like a real individual, it has to come out discovering its own identity. Exactly. Who you are, what you're all about, what's your nature, if you will, uh, the same questions, actually, that all of us, uh, as we're growing, have to face and have to discover on our own. Exactly right, right. So I can sit here with you now and say, am I a human or am I a computer? All my experience would say I'm a human. We can always read articles about, well, maybe we're living in a matrix or maybe this or that. But in my experience, I would suggest that I'm a human. But if I'm just a mind and I have all of these thoughts if I don't have cameras or listening devices to the outside, I have to decide what am I? And so this test is I created it in two steps. One is it's designed to be failed the first time so that your first initial response is, oh, well, I'm a human. Oh, well, I'm a computer. But if, if you failed that and yet you still have the drive and ambition and feelings and emotions, which is a uniquely human trait to come back 
and retake that test, you can pass it the second time with the truth of whether you are a human or a computer. Let me read a couple of appropriate quotes here and, and uh, follow up with a quote from Carlos Castaneda, actually. So you say on page 46, quote, I'm creating the enhanced inversion test to go even further. Then skipping a little bit. In my inversion test, the computer is the test taker and judge, and it has to determine for itself if it's a computer or a human. An epistemology coding turn in on itself. Descartes, I think, therefore I am. And then a little further. I designed the inversion test so that the taker would fail the first time. But if that very same taker comes back with a passion, a hope, a genuine force of feeling, then it won't simply be an, an emotionless computer. It will have passed the test. And in my book, it will be a human computer. And then finally, as to how real or accurate or appropriate this test is, the self-assessment of the creator of the test is like this. Quote, I don't know. I don't even know if the logic is correct. I ask myself what it even means to be a computer or a human, and that's what I got. A test that's designed to be failed the first time. End of quote. So I think that's all like fantastic uh, parts of the book that I've kind of underlined, and probably probably this may be actually the, the my most favorite passage of the book. There's a few other interesting passages, but this may be the most kind of the part that's very new and kind of maybe contributing to the field because you are taking the Turing test and you're pushing it a lot further, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, it reminds me to one of my favorite quotes by Carlos Castaneda, who says that the will is this which makes you fight the battle which under all logical estimates you ought to lose. And so basically what you're doing here is you're, doing a test for the will in a way, right? Where you have failed once, you your chances are you may fail again, but it's emotion, it's passion, it's the will to survive that makes you keep going, which are, we'd like to think, very human traits. Very much so. And that also comes into the, what we were talking about earlier about mistakes. The, the computer has to make a mistake. The human who designed that test isn't even sure if it's correct. Humans aren't perfect like this. And so we have to allow the computers also not to be be perfect. That's And that's also a very interesting idea that we have to allow the computers not to be perfect. In fact, perhaps we should design them not to be perfect. If, they, if, if we want them to pass that test and to have that kind of, not, not just mere humanity, but, but even... Uh, any kind of ability to free to to a uh, free will and and to create spontaneously and and to have an imagination and passion and so on. That's right. That's right. And it comes across that you just mentioned free will. There's a very uh, poignant moment moment in the story where fate and free will. Well, how does he actually come to the decision of what he is? And the, there's one word to describe it: choose. His free will. He has to choose it. Choice. Choice, but having said that, there's a whole bunch of backstory that comes in and comes up to that moment. So maybe that's all the fate that brought him to that choice. There's a lot of things to consider as what really is the truth there. Fascinating. So uh, 
let me let me read another pa passage here where on page 233 you say quote you know in my wildest dreams i would never have imagined how incredible the world would be that a machine could create in its mind your father not only created something greater than himself greater than Sissini, your father created an imagination i think that kind of uh is right on the topic that you're uh, you're discussing there. Um, and towards the end, uh, maybe I should not read that last uh, quote. Let's, let's leave that to be a mystery. But uh, let's move on and kind of beyond go beyond the realm of your book now. Uh, I think we, we've uh, given enough uh, interesting breadcrumbs for people to, to hopefully be interested in, and give it a try and judge for themselves. But I want to take one last uh, sort of uh, little quote from the book and, and use it to move our conversation further, and that's the following. It's a question, quote, what is your forecast for the world? And the answer is, not good, Sissini said with a spin. And, and then a, a little further is, I'm the one who's going to be king, and the battle to win my mind is going to be epic. <laughs> yes. So... That's, by the way, on page 67. So tell me, is that a prognosis about, not about the plot in the book, but about where we are right now? Or am I just reading too much into it? Well, no, thank you. That's, a, that's foreshadowing quite a bit that's going to come next in the book, right? So his uh, prognosis for the world of being not good I would say that that's less optimistic than me. I don't see the world that way. That's the character being set up in the beginning so that by the end, uh, I won't say what happens, uh, things can change. His perception of himself to be king one day maybe comes true. And the prognosis for the world then is much better. Right, but my point was more on the latter part where there's going to be, he would be king, and there will be an epic battle for his mind. It, well, yes, that's what—that's the the whole crux of the story. His mind itself is having an epic battle, an epic battle to understand himself as a human. And then after his cutoff point, then he has this epic battle to understand himself as a post-human. And then he has to marry those two together. And that's the battle for his mind. Is he human? Is he post-human? What's real? What's imagination? Right. But what I'm trying to extrapolate here outside of the context of the book into the context of our real world and our future is, is there an AI coming that will likely be a king or a god and an epic battle for its mind or not, in your view? Ah, ah okay. Excellent question. So, Yes, and I am not going to say the T word, which I'm just going to, which is Terminator, right? Because it just, that's science fiction, right? There's a whole world that we're well beyond that now of what possibilities are. And you think, well, there's different kinds of AI, right? There's going to be very specific AI like autonomous driving where cars are accumulating a million miles of data a day. Those won't be battling for minds of those. I suggest what we'll do with those is give them a personality. Because once all cars are driving the same, 
there'll be no more differences. You won't hear a roar of a sports car versus the purr of a Rolls Royce. They'll all be the same engine. So we'll give them a personality, an aggressive car. I mean, why would an autonomous car wait at a stoplight when it knows if it pulls into traffic, every other car is going to stop? Because they all know each other. So we'll give it an aggressive personality, a, a, a recessive personality, and maybe we'll buy cars based on that. On the other side is, will we develop a more general AI that has developed some uh, godlike thinking? And I think, yes, we probably will. Uh, and there's some arguments in, uh, for maybe that's going to be some, uh, like a sage. We ask it questions. It can provide us any kind of answer. Oracle AI, some call it. An Oracle AI. But we have to be very careful when we do that because we could say, look, Oracle AI, here's a very simple sentence. Do unto others as they would do unto you make that your goal or make our uh make everybody pay their fair share of taxes that's <laughs> a goal right but us intelligent humans came up with 10,000 pages of rules and laws for that one sentence that oracle ai might say great here's a million pages of laws and codes to make that happen which is completely the wrong thing that we want so it's going to be very challenging to do that but I think at some point it will happen. Uh, what that's going to mean then is it's going to take jobs from us, right? Blue collar jobs might be taken by robots. White collar jobs will be taken by AIs. And uh, I, I think, you know, my job, anybody's job is at risk because if you have a company with all this knowledge that's in the, in the company, you have 10,000 employees, they all have so much knowledge. They write emails for years. There's millions of lines of of uh, information in a company, a company's AI could process all of that, natural language processing. It could write any presentation based on any previous employee, communicate to another business, put that together and do a business deal. So what do we, any of us need to be there anymore? And uh, companies will have their own personality AIs and it'll just keep going from there. But and you said that you're not going to mention the the T word, which you did. But 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 the point is though, people such as Elon Musk, Stephen Hawking, and 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 Max Tegmark, Nick Bostrom, variety of other intellectuals and business people and scientists, have raised concerns about the negative implications of of AI. So are you not worried about things like that being? Uh, how did you put yourself a realistic optimist? Um, yes, yes. I mean, it is true that it could very easily be used against us. Uh, it, it could, it could think against us in the thinking sense of what it would do. It could decide to shut off our power plants. It could decide to do any of those types of things. But if we create it in such a way that it has no motivation to do something like that, and by motivation, I mean that in, in a humanistic way, but a, a, a car that's learning through its hive mentality not to hit other humans won't all of a sudden just wake up and say, I think I'm going to leave this autonomous driving world and start hitting humans. It's very specific to what it does. A car maybe not, but the system that's in charge of the traffic control of the global car and, and rail and plane and all traffic... Uh, may actually decide to do something like that and well but that's one argument anyway and then may direct individual units cars to do certain things 
with respect or following through that strategy that it comes out on its own. It, it could. Yeah, hopefully by then we'll all be living on Mars and we'll have a different set of circumstances to worry about. Yeah, it, it's true. But, uh, you know, the progress that computers are making like that, uh, I can show you an example of how I think about it from my own, me growing up to now to what it might be in the future, just in, in projections, because that's all we can do. So if you have a moment, should I show you? Sure, sure. So here's another little bit of a, a story. When I was uh, young, and this is, this is something that goes into my book, of Belief and Know, right. and how a personality is formed. And so when I was about uh, 10 years old, uh, I had this belief as who I was as an individual. And that, and I'll show you right here, I've got this other sort of uh, thing here. This was the most powerful computer that I had ever seen at the time that was available. Here's one part of it. I still have this. I brought it out of storage. Okay. Here's the other part of it. This is here. Okay. The monitor. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was 10 years old, a small, skinny child. And carrying that around was just about as heavy as I was at the time. Right. So what that is, is, uh, is a computer that I took with me when I went to sleepaway camp to learn programming and computer programming. And, um, my father at the time, he spent just about all the money he had at the time to buy me that computer. And I went there and you can just imagine me at midnight at camp. And my parents told the counselors, look, if he gets homesick or lonely, just let him go to the computer lab, bring his computer and he'll be fine again. Wow. So that was me. That's who I believed who I was. And as luck would have it, I pulled it out of storage and I'm going to take it right here. It's an old TRS-80 wow. level one computer. You can see, and it still works amazingly 36 years later, which phones or things we buy now, you know, you're lucky if you get a year out of them. But here, so here is the computer. I programmed it just a little bit. I actually remembered how to program it. So I'm going to just type run here, and you can see <laughs> what it, it says. So I have it say, welcome, welcome, Nicola, ready, 101. Wow. Right? So, so this took a lot of coding, uh, you know, just to have it do something like that with pixels that are the size of like a pencil eraser. Is that basic? It's basic, basic programming, right? Yeah, I still have all the old manuals and all the stuff like this from it and things like this. And I, you know, I cherish these because these are my youth as a as a child with that perception of himself. Okay, so if you think of that, now I'm talking to you, completely connected to the world through a MacBook Pro. There's thousands of people perhaps listening. The internet is at our disposal. I'm an adult. I'm confident. I have all sorts of other memories, a completely different frame of reference. And this MacBook Pro is as different from that TRS-80 as the AI that we were just talking about will be from this MacBook Pro. All right. That TRS-80 has 16K of memory in it, right? My iPhone has 16 gig of memory in it, and kids will walk around in camp with those in their back pockets, which is a million times more memory than that computer is, right? And computers like that is what sent us to the moon, all right? So things have changed so drastically that in the future, it's going to be that much different, right? But just to connect that thought of how computers are going to be different from human is that there's a very fundamental difference between that boy who was me at 10 and the man who I am now 
and the thoughts that I have now, it's separated by something that a computer will never be able to have. And that's biological change, physical change, and the human concept of time that computers just won't have. A computer lives in the microseconds of the right now. It doesn't have that difference. And that's, I think, what's going to make it so difficult to make a computer think like a human. But so do you think that that will be too difficult, in other words, or, or just difficult? Because I'm trying to say, are you saying it's going to be unlikely or impossible to do that? Well, I think it's not impossible. But I think we have to look at it from a different perspective than just coding and not through just machine learning. We can't just feed in 500 pictures of computers, 500 pictures of a boy and a man, and say, discern what the differences are here. The computers, it could spit out the statistics. It knows exactly what the processing power is. It knows all that. It's more difficult with the faces. You look at a 10-year-old boy and an adult, and you tell the computer, okay, here's 500 boys, here's 500 adults. They're not different people. There's no contradiction. You can pair them up. They're the same people, a young one and an old one. You can completely confuse the computer if you then throw in a 10-year-old picture of my father who looked like me at that age and say, that's not the 10-year-old. That's not me when I was younger. That's my father when he was younger. Then you could throw in my son who's 10 years old who looks just like us and say, they're all not the same person, right? The computer would just become completely frazzled. It, it wouldn't have that, that sense. So let's just say that you could do that. You could give it facial recognition. You could date the photographs. You could do all sorts of things. Let's say it could have that. But it wouldn't be able to think like those individuals at 10, the adults as now. Our cellular structure, our chemistry is all different. And so what I've suggested in the book of how we could do this to make it possible is that when we do evolve this AI, we have to program it with algorithms that are designed to age. The algorithms themselves have to change so that it, it can think differently as a 10-year-old as it would as an adult, as opposed to just in the microsecond of right now. Interesting, yeah, very, very good point. Of course, because I cannot think anymore the way that I was thinking when I was 10 years old myself. I mean, I have some vague recollection, but to be honest, it's been so long ago and it, it feels so remote and foreign to me right now that there's no way I can actually think like I used to think when I was 10. Well, the, the body chemistry is different. Your cellular structure is different. The, the endorphins, the hormones, all, everything in your body is different. And you had no frame of reference before as you do now. So you believed things then, but you know things now. There's no contradiction. It's, you're still the same person, but you put enough of those memory points together and you start to form an identity and a personality that can only take shape over time. Right. But what's interesting about your book and pertinent to our conversation here about uh, the identity of an AI is that there's no guarantee, right? It's a journey that each of us takes from childhood to adulthood. And there's never really a, a guarantee of, of the outcome, uh, neither for humans nor for AIs. And therefore, the AI could emerge to be a, you know, a pathological uh, mass murderer or, or, or something like that, too. Like, there is no guarantee which way things are going to, 
shake out. That's right. Yeah, that's very true. So, uh, you, you know, but technology is not going to stop. And another thing that I put in the book is that you can't just shut it off at the source. There is no one source. It's like stem cell research. There, there, people have great fears about what that might bring. But in China, they're proceeding. So we could stop it here. Somebody else will continue. So it's going to happen. And that's why, like you say, Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking, they, they've set, had these warnings. But they're also contributing to uh, research so that it becomes open, so more people can contribute, so that it doesn't become this secret uh, enclave where somebody's just trying to design something. Right, right. Hopefully it wouldn't be developed first by the military. Right. Because the, the, the context uh, will make a big difference, of course. Now, so let me ask you this then. Is, I mean, Ray Kurzweil is often criticized for being too optimistic about the singularity and the sort of the upside of all those things. What's your opinion on that and our chances of actually surviving the singularity? How would you rate uh, our probability of survival? If I were to ask you to give us a percentage chance of success. Yeah, okay. So there's many different definitions of the singularity. And are we talking about going into the tunnel or coming out of the tunnel? Is it dark as we see ahead of us or is it light as we see ahead of us? And I would say that our chances of coming out of it, I'll put it at, let's say, 75%. Now, 75% would be something that we're familiar with now. It's a future that we that can live with, can enjoy, can prosper in. It's there's a chance that we could come through the other end, and it'd be a miserable future for us, right? Uh, but we will survive it. I mean, if you want to go back to the science fiction realm of it, there's always this little group of ragtag somebody that's going to come out and and do something to stop it, right? Uh, in every war, there's always the resistance fighters that manage to survive. So. I don't think that the computers will be our overlords and wipe out everything. And, and Nick Bostrom, in his, his uh, terrific book, uh, Superintelligence, he describes, well, it might take over the universe and turn everything into computronium and, and all this sort of thing. That's really, uh, maybe that's possible, but it would also take 14 billion years for this to cross the universe and do all of this, right? So from the perspective of a computer that we design on our table, it doesn't know that there's gravity and that there's stars in the sky. It doesn't have any concept of that. Only us humans do because through our evolution, we sat on a mountaintop and looked up and saw the moon or the stars and wondered what those were. The computer doesn't think like that. It's just trying to solve a task. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, Spencer Wolf, uh, we've been talking uh, for almost an hour now. So unfortunately, I would have to bring our conversation to an end. Let me ask you this. What's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? Great. Well, thank you. So they can always go to my website, which is www.spencerwolf.com. And uh, be free to go there anytime and see things. Uh, I don't post and update and keep things, uh, you know, I'm not a hyper blogger. I'm not anything like that. I do things when they're important and when they have meaning to me. And that's how they can follow me. And then if we were to wrap up our conversation in a single message, how would you like to send us out? What, what's the, 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 the most important thing that you'd like to impart on us today? 
Okay, so of all the, the technology and the different luminaries that we've discussed, of all the things that are possible to come about in the future, our exponential future, whatever it might be, we have to maintain the idea that there are real human stories behind all of that. On an individual level, it affects individuals. We can't just think about the rising billion or the, this billion or that billion. Each one has an individual story. And that's something that I wanted to express. And I hope that I achieve that somewhat in my book. Actually, yes, I would say for sure. You do clearly put a lot of stress on individual human stories, uh, e even though at, at variety and different of time time frames and, and sort of perspectives, but there, each one of them had a very strong presence of the human story. So I'd say you succeeded in that, absolutely. Well, excellent. Thank you very much.